0: Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Nicholas Wolpe. He's the founder and CEO of the Lillysleaf Museum, which is in Ravonia, a suburb of Johannesburg. The museum is the site of one of the most significant events in recent South African history. It was on the site in July 11, 1963, the leadership of the NC High Command were arrested, 20 activists in all, many of whom were later put on trial. Uh, Ahmed Katrada, Governor Mbeki, Dennis Goldberg amongst them, uh, who served um, many, many years in prison. Nicholas's father, Harold, uh, was one of those arrested, but he managed to actually escape from jail, quite a dramatic event in itself, and make his way eventually to the UK. That's where Nicholas grew up. Nicholas and I chatted about the whole project, how it came about, what he's trying to achieve, and also what a personal and sort of cathartic journey he's been on over the years as the project has evolved. Uh, Lily's Leaf is a place of memory and a a place of liberation and you feel that in the grounds there's a a kind of special uh, sense of something special. Uh, when, you, when you walk in the rooms, there are the original houses here, along with some extra buildings. Um, we also spoke about his concerns that South Africans were forgetting their history. He's very passionate about um, needing a common history here in South Africa so that we can build a common identity um, for our future. Um, please now enjoy my chat with Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate that. Uh, you being a very busy man, as most of the people I do meet these days seem to be. Um, we're sitting in your office at Lily's Leaf at the museum, of which you are. Founder and director, is that correct? Founder and CEO. Founder and CEO. Um, and uh, we will... Well, let's start off with that. I mean, you have a very uh, specific uh, historical connection to this this place in, in that it was your father, Harold Wolpe, and I don't want to make this all about him, but he. this is the connection that you have with Lily Sleaf. Could you just tell us a little bit about this Place and how it came about that you've kind of resurrected this 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 site.
1: Um, Firstly, Nicholas, thanks for having me on your show. It's a real privilege and honour. I think let me start by saying, let me go back and down memory lane and reminisce about me as a young little boy, around eight, nine, ten. And I remember very growing up in the UK, and growing all, up right. in the UK and
0: your f- family in exile. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yes, but I think the story I'm going to tell is very poignant to Lily's leaf. So I remember as a little boy, looking through my uncle's book, James Cantle, who became the eighth co-accused at the Rivonia Trial because he was charged with sabotage primarily for feeding the chickens here. <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but yes, primarily for feeding the chickens. He's your mum's brother? That's correct. His, uh, my mother's brother. And, of course, he also suffered the sins of his brother-in-law. So they inflicted the sins of the brother-in-law on him. So feeding the chickens and the sins of the brother-in-law were piled on top of that. And he wrote a book called A Healthy Grave, which um, chronicled his experience because he was, at the time, a very successful criminal lawyer, a playboy, like most white South Africans, you know, had a, an understanding and appreciation, and I would say an element of sympathy, but you know, the white lifestyle far exceeded that moral kind of sense of guilt if that makes sense. There was a kind of like, well, yes, I feel bad, but my lifestyle is wonderful. I'm not really going to give up my lifestyle for equality and justice. And so he wrote this book from the perspective of someone who was living a wonderful, white, affluent lifestyle in apartheid South Africa and the psychological, emotional, and I would even say the mental impact that this had on him it's a very stirring, very moving an emotional book because you get to feel the pain that he suffered, but he was also a man of incredible morality and integrity, which comes out of it as well and he he had a and in the book were some photographs, and one was the one of those pictures was the iconic picture of the main house. And I used to, as a little boy, sit there and wonder what this place was mm. about. Why was this place so significant? And I would drift away. I mean, I'd literally sit there for 20, 30 minutes just staring a at this. A fantasy
0: world almost.
1: To some degree, yes. But it wasn't so much of a fantasy world. It was, it was like I was trying to get inside of the house. And I suppose I'm saying that In retrospect. Because I rem- it's always been there with me. It's always been a very poignant memory I've had. And interestingly, it came to the fore one day when I was being interviewed by someone and they asked me a question and that's what popped out spontaneously. Was There was no thought to it. There was no kind of thinking. I just, it came out. It was almost like, and then it became verbal diarrhea around that whole issue of me staring at this picture as a little boy, and I was saying, who would think that at the time, um, 40-odd years later, I would be, 44-odd years later, would be doing this project? Hmm. I mean, it was was so fortuitous on the one hand, but there was a sense of maybe it was there, because it was so poignant, that picture. So when I was asked in 2001 to put on the Rivonia Trial Reunion here at Sleeve. and I went ahead I, as I was going putting the event together I thought we can't just do a reunion there's much more to this place than a reunion we can't let it die so I said can I set up a trust and they said okay. you can go ahead set up a trust and I negotiated with the three property owners and on the day the day before the event, we sign all the agreements with the three property owners, which said, you have until the end of March, 2002, to come up with the money to purchase the properties. If you don't, then the agreements It'll are null fall and void. Away. Fall away. Why am I telling the story? Because on the day of the event, someone walked up to me and said, are you aware of something? And he went on for a f- maybe 30, 40 seconds, which of course feels like a lifetime. And I said, Put me out of my misery. What am I supposed to be aware of? He said, I can't believe you're not aware of this. Your father did the legal purchase, and 40 years later, you were buying it back. Hmm. So the link to Lily's Leaf was that my father was the lawyer that did the legal purchase back in August of 1961, Hmm. Um, and he was a partner in my uncle's law firm. And not only did he do the legal purchase, he also came to Lily's Leaf and met here in the main house, in the dining room, because he was head of military intelligence. Right. And he would come here and also do the repairing of the Roneo machines that printed the liberation material. And my mother rec- tells a lovely story about how her mother would always, not always, but would ask, where is Harold? <laughs> and she would say, he's out playing bridge. <laughs> that was the explanation as to why he was not around, but most of the time he was here at Lily's Leaf. Mm. So that's the connection. The connection yeah. is that he did the legal purchase for Lily's Leaf in August 61 through a front company called Navian Pty Limited, which was the front company for the Communist Party.
0: So, I mean, it's a quite a deep, like, as you say, quite a cerebral kind of connection that you have with the space. Um, but... You didn't come back to South Africa with the idea of setting up the museum, or, or was that always something you wanted to do?
1: No, I mean, it's it's one of those, I don't know whether the word is fortuitous, bizarre, uh, fates of life. I don't know what would be the most appropriate adjective to describe it. Because, you know, while I was growing up in exile, I was... I. On the one hand, I rebelled. I didn't want anything to do with the struggle. That, hmm. I was like, you know, I wanted to separate myself. Okay. You know, like any child, you find ways of rebelling. And that was my way of, on the one hand, rebelling. Hmm. And, you know, when I returned to South Africa, the reality was, you know, I was living in the shadow of, of my parents. You know, I was the son of Harold or Anne-Marie Wolpe. I was not an individual in my own right, which I accepted. But I wasn't aware as to how deep that went. I wasn't aware as to how significant and how much of a role my father played. Yes, you have an idea. Hmm. It's like death. We all say we can deal with, with death when a member of our family dies. But the reality is the acknowledgement and the reality are two separate things. They are worlds apart. And that was the same. So, no, I mean, when I returned to South Africa, it was the furthest thing from my thought. I mean, I did one day go in search of Lily's Leaf. I remember I had a friend who was <laughs> a journalist with the Associated Press, and he said he thinks he kn- he knew where Lily's Leaf was, and he told me where he thought it was. And, of course, I never found it, because it wasn't where he said it was. It was he told me it was um, on the other side of the highway, on the M1, oh, okay. which is, you know... Yeah. It's quite far from here so I never found the place um, and I never dreamt of doing something like this but fortuitously I remember when I was in France in 99 September of 1999 and I'd gone to a town called Orange which has one of the most beautiful, pristine Roman amphitheatres there is. And there's still a lot of archaeological digging going on. And I remember sitting at the very back of it, at the top, feeling myself being taken back to that era, that period, and thinking to myself, if ever I did a a project that linked to history, that feeling that I am feeling now, that feeling that is being evoked, I want to create that feeling again. Lily's leaf wasn't even on the horizon, but it was just so interesting that 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 moment in time I had this sense of if I did a project,
0: this is what I wanted that, to create yeah, we can talk about but I do want to come to that just the, the the space and what what you've done what you've done here. Can I just talk a little bit first about um growing up in exile? you said you kind of rejected your your parents activism to to some degree sort of actively stayed away from from the liberation struggle um, what what were you what did you I mean you went to school and then university and what what, what were you sort of doing before you came to South Africa returned to South Africa I
1: mean it, I mean it was quite interesting you say that I mean it wasn't I wouldn't see it as a rejection it was more of a kind of Way of me expressing my anger towards my father mm-hmm. because of not, on the one hand, understanding growing up, you know, trying to understand, but at the same time not understanding. But I remember as an eight year old, again, one of those most vivid memories of standing in the spare bedroom and saying to myself, I am first and foremost a South African. My home is South Africa. I am a South African. And that one day, God willing, I would like to return to South Africa. I never thought it was going to happen because at that time one never mm. dreamt of or imagined that in 1990 that Nelson Mandela or prior to that the Ravonia trialists would be released. But mm. there was a sense of, for me, of being a South African first and foremost. That I was in Britain not because I wanted to be there but because the circumstances forced us into exile. So growing up in Britain was a very interesting experience on a number of levels. Firstly, you knew you were different. Firstly, you knew that you were not part of the British culture. Some chose to assimilate and chose to become part of British society. I chose not to because I felt more of a... Fin- An affinity with South Africa. I felt more that my home was South Africa. My parents thought by not telling me and my sisters they were protecting us. They actually had no idea how much we were aware of, how much we were aware of what was going on and what was happening. So South Africa was very much a part of our lives, was very much part of our daily existence. Because we would have so many people coming through Can the house. imagine, yeah i mean joe slovo was a regular guest in fact he would at times stay at the house and i remember as a little boy getting extremely frustrated because i was booted out of my bedroom <laughs> <laughs> into the spare bedroom and i thought how dare you why was i the one that was had to vacate the bedroom you know
0: yeah. you know so so you can't, what your parents never really you had no idea about this whole uh, place and your dad's escape, your the, the famous escape uh, after arrest and all of that, I mean, those were things you, you sort of found out by, sort of just trickle down over the years? Yes. I mean, he didn't, I mean, he would
1: occasionally talk about it at dinner parties. He would occasionally talk about it. But he wasn't overtly willing to engage. Mm. He was very quiet. I mean, the, I would say the information was from the press cuttings Hmm. that we had. We had a lot of press cuttings, a lot of information around it. But it wasn't something that he would share at the dining room table. We'd have to kind of cajole him Hmm. to speak about it. Hmm. Um, It wasn't a dinner party conversation. Um, And I remember, you know, recently I reestablished contact with a friend of mine from school days. Who said he had no idea about my family's background? He had no idea about my parents, that we were South African, that this was our way, this was our life. So I wasn't, so I obviously myself was very secretive about our family. I think I had told a couple of people and I had showed them the press cuttings, um, but it wasn't something that was daily conversation in our household. Mm. Um, but we were aware of it. I mean, we've learned more about my father since I've taken on this project. Hmm. And I remember telling my mother, and she was completely astounded. Hmm. And what we learned was that he was a commander of MK that would go to Angola. When I originally said to her once, oh, um, he was in Angola, she said, impossible. He never went to Angola. And I said, this is what... These are two stories. These two stories that were told were outside of the project. But what reaffirmed them for me, because I remember arguing with one of them and him saying, I know who your father was, why are you denying that he was in Angola? I saw him there I shared a room with him. And then another person told the story again that they met him in the camps in Angola. But I suppose what really reaffirmed it was we had started a project to interview as many MK operatives as we could possibly do with the limited budget that we had because we feel that a lot of those mk operatives who as you know today live in adject poverty who have been forgotten who have been thrown aside who have who have who gave up their best years of their life for the struggle who have not been looked after i mean it's so painful to see mm. it is so painful to see these individuals who gave so much for for want of nothing in return, to be on the one hand cast aside. And so I came back one day after they had interviewed a group of them. When, so when is this now? This, I think I can't remember. It must have been about 2014, December okay, 2014. Recent, so it's recent, recent, yeah. In the last four or five years. Fascinating. And I came back to lock up Lily and I saw them and I walked towards them. And as I walked towards them, five of them saluted me. So I said, what are you doing? And they say, we salute the son of our commanding officer. Get out. It was such an emotional moment for me. I mean, I had to hold back the tears. I mean, to see these individuals show such respect, Mm. not to me, because it was, you know, they were... To the memory of your dad. To the memory of my father. It was very poignant. But also the fact that they had that integrity about them. Um... So it has mm. also been a cathartic journey, but I'd like to say it, it never. I never started the project with the objective of it being a cathartic journey. It evolved. Mm. It's become... It became. I suppose thing. you can't separate it. Mm. When you're so entwined into the story, yeah. the story itself becomes a form of an expression of understanding, of trying to understand and become more understanding of why he did what he did looking back to as a young boy as a teenager and those years were frustration and anger that i had towards him for some you know for a number of reasons mm. so the journey has also been a very enlightening and eye-opening journey for me mm. when we started the project our biggest concern there would be nothing to Lily's Leaf other than the raid on the 11th of July. And I thought, oh my God, you know, everyone's going to say you spent all this money doing all of this, and all there is is the 11th of July. And there's nothing to Lily's Leaf. 11th of July, 1963.
0: 1963
1: yeah. So the raid on the 11th of July, 1963. That all, then led to the Rivonia trials. Yes. yes. Um, so, you know, I had this anxiety that. The 11th of July, 1963, that would be it. And then, of course, you would talk a bit about the Rivonia trial, which the raid on Lily's Leaf led to, hence the name Rivonia, because Lily's Leaf was in the periurban area of Rivonia. But how wrong we were. I mean, Lily's Leaf it was a story waiting to be told. It has morphed into such a phenomenal story. We coined the phrase Lily's Leaf Uncovered. So... Lily's Leaf became the nerve center of the liberation movement during that period of 61 to 63. Yes, it started out originally as the headquarters of the Communist Party, the Central Committee, and the Politburo. That's why it was purchased originally. So it was purchased uh, originally for the use of the Communist Party, and it was the Communist Party that purchased Lily's Leaf. The money came via Moscow, through Zurich, into my uncle's trust account. It, from there, evolved into the high command of the newly formed military wing, and Nelson Mandela, who was the first commander-in-chief, and he was living here as David Meyer. It then went beyond that and became the nerve center of the liberation movement, the Congress Alliance. It became the hub and the heartbeat of the struggle. It articulated the very essence of the struggle. It brought the Freedom Charter alive. The Freedom Charter wasn't just words on a document. They became words on a document that became a reality. They started to be acted out here. They started to be articulated here. And if I can give one example, and this this story for me personifies what Lily's Leaf represented, and what Lily's Leaf represents today. And I can talk more about that later. The, there was, we refer to him as the 10 year old snitch. He was, his name was George Mellis, and his parents owned the Caravan, the caravan Park Hall. on the opposite side of Lily's Leaf. And he was friendly with the Goldreich children. And one day while he was here, he noticed highly unusual behavior and that highly unusual behaviour was black men mm. and white men shaking hands i mean it's it's it, it's mind boggling to think that that was the so unusual that it was so unusual and of course he went home and he told his parents what he witnessed and they took him to the local police station and the local commander said the next time you're there write down the number plates of all the vehicles parked in the gold yard which he subsequently did but for some reason Sad, the poor kid. The officer, the commander, didn't act upon it. But what is the meaning of this story? What is the essence of the story? That's more important, the shaking hands. What does it tell us? And it's summed up by Martin Luther King when he says in his I Have a Dream speech that one day my four children will live in a land where they're judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that also speaks to we, the people of South Africa, declare for South Africa and the world to know that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. So what they were doing here was living out the dreams, the aspirations, the hope of a new South Africa predicated on the content of one's character rather than the color of one's skin. And that is what Lily's Leaf at the very core represents. It represented the very essence of what our liberation struggle was about and what we wanted to achieve and what we
0: wanted to come out of that struggle. Um, let's talk about the the space itself and what you've created here. What, I mean, it's, it's beautifully laid out the way, you, I mean... And I do encourage you, uh, if you're able to 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 come by here, um, to visit this 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 place of liberation, as as you call it. Um, just architecturally, it's it's very beautifully done. The way you've integrated the original homes with uh, your offices, and there's a resource center, and we can talk a little bit about that. But um, what what has been What for you is the main purpose of this space if we put it in the context of history and memory, particularly in a post-liberation South Africa? The reality that
1: we as South Africans face today is a scary reality. And we can deny it as much as we want, and, and people can say, I'm talking nonsense. But the reality is, We are forgetting our liberation struggle history. We are forgetting what our struggle was about. The names associated with that struggle are being forgotten. There is only one name that people know of, and that's Nelson Mandela. And I think it's extremely interesting, if you look what is happening in America vis-a-vis the civil rights movement, where they feel they are. The same thing happened to America. It was reduced to one individual, Martin Martin Luther Luther King. King. We've reduced our struggle to one individual. And we haven't just reduced it to one individual. We've reduced it to an individual who's become an icon. But we, to some degree, don't understand what that icon means, what the meaning behind the name stands for and represents. So we are in the throes of a new struggle I believe and that struggle is the struggle against forgetting and I'd like to give you three simple but very powerful examples that highlight and demonstrate how far our struggle has fallen and has become forgotten. The first is about headmistress who tells me the story that one day an irate mother comes to the school and wants to know why her daughter is going to a farm as a history outing what do animals have to do with history that is actually what she said coming coming here yes Referring to Lily's Leaf Farm, mm. so her understanding sorry, no. and perception was Lily's Leaf Farm was a farm with animals. So eventually, after a few minutes, the, the headmistress said, You're, "You've got the wrong end of the stick. This is what Lily's Leaf Farm is." And the mother said, "Oh, I'm sorry," and left. The second story revolves around the fact that one day I was walking through Nelson Mandela Square, and I. Bumped into a friend, and he said, "Come and join us, and tell these two born free young ladies what you do." So I said to them, "Have you heard of Ravonia?" After maybe ten seconds, the one piped up and said, "Yes, the road." At which point I taunted him and said, "Look, I'm not. I can't do this." And I got up and I left. The third story was told to me by the late Alistair Sparks, who recalled a story of a a, uh, an American professor of journalism giving a talk to a group of aspiring journalists and he asked them, who is O.R. Tambo? No one put their hand up and eventually someone put their hand up and said the airport. These three stories illustrate the degree to which our history and in particular our liberation struggle history has faded. Not only faded, but it's become lost in translation. We think by naming a building after Bram Fisher, naming a road after Robert Sobukwe, naming a street after John Enkidimane, Albertina Susulu, Winnie Mandela, we think we are preserving the memory of those individuals and what they stood for. Unless we know the meaning behind the name, unless we have an understanding of the stories and events, and what they believed, those are merely names, nothing more, nothing less, just like Nike, just like Coca-Cola as a name. It doesn't mean anything other than it's a product. But here, it it doesn't even associate necessarily with an individual.
0: How do we change that then? Because you would have thought that, The government, the ANC government, would have wanted to preserve and highlight and um, accentuate its history as the party of of liberation and make all of those liberation heroes household names?
1: Nicholas, it's an interesting question. It's actually baffled me. I mean, on numerous occasions I recall being interviewed by Uh, TV stations, one in particular the BBC, when they said isn't the ANC rewriting history as the victor and I said, you know what, with all due respect you are clutching at straws here, I wish they were writing the history I wish they were doing something I wish they were being proactive in writing and I think you can see that whole issue around shall we make history compulsory. It shouldn't even be a discussion. It shouldn't even be up for discussion. It should be a non-negotiable. History will be taught in our schools. We will learn the history of this country from from the time Neanderthal man right the way through to Van Riebeck through right the way through to... 1990 and beyond. We will learn about our struggle. We will learn about what makes this country unique. We will teach everyone in this country that our struggle was not a struggle that identified black against white, but was a struggle that went to the heart of humanity, to the heart of the morality of humankind, that so inspired the world to rally, so inspired the world in international solidarity that they came together, regardless of ideological affiliation, because it went to the root of what humankind aspires to and wishes to achieve. So the question is, why are we not celebrating that? Why are we not articulating that? Why are we not embracing it? It is a it it does baffle me as to why we haven't embraced it. I mean, it has got to the point where that has even become political. So when I have talked about the need to create an African history, I've been attacked. Why do we need an African history? Within the context of our African history, there is a a variety of historical strands which we will learn about. But first and foremost, we are African. Therefore, we learn an African history, and part of that African history is our liberation struggle. But what makes our liberation struggle even more important and our liberation struggle history even more fundamental is it is the source in I, I believe it is the source of our of the nile to create the sense of social cohesion unity and common purpose that i believe we lack in this country we don't have a national identity mm. and if you take that as the starting point if we don't have a national identity to a large degree nothing else flows from there and whatever flows from there it's, Disunity, disorganized, chaotic, because it doesn't give us a sense of what we want to achieve. I mean that old adage, if you don't know where you come from, you have no idea where you're going, and I think it is afflicting us, it is hurting us, and that is one of the reasons why we find ourselves where we are today so Sites of memory, like Lily's Thief, have a fundamental role to keep the memory alive, to ensure that we start to appreciate and understand the importance of our history. This is not about black or white. This is about our history and what can bind us together, just like the struggle bound together the world against apartheid. So the essence and ideals and the fundamental principles, which are articulated very clearly and very eloquently in our Freedom Charter become the basis and the foundations to build a new South Africa.
0: What role then do you see this uh, site of memory, place of liberation uh, playing in hopefully uh, not only preserving um, space and time in our past but giving an understanding of our present and our possible future and how do you hope that will happen? I mean, it goes beyond busloads of school kids, but I suppose that would be one
1: It goes place. It goes
0: well beyond the busload of
1: school kids because we're dealing with a country that has forgotten its past. We're dealing with what I like to call a break in the historical dialectic. And what do I mean by that? that our past is our link to the present and our bridge to the future. I mean if we look at all the great social scientists and philosophers their critiques were predicated within a historical analysis. The historical analysis provided the basis of their understanding. Hegel talked about history in the context of consciousization, in terms of the consciousness of the individual. Why is it so then, that we talk about history as if it is meaningless to our understanding of the present? We, We do not give the importance of history its due recognition. We do not give the importance of history as a central thesis to our understanding of our social dynamics and the way we interact. So that we've created this, I would like to call it this kind of neutron bomb where, you know, where neutron bombs keep the buildings but kill Mm. the people. But we've created this wonderful edifice to build a solid society but have neglected the The meso level, the people and how they interact. The TRC was a start, but we never followed it through. And that to some degree comes down to the fact that our history is ignored. We don't create the platform or the understanding to understand each other, to be able to create that interaction. Moses Katana said, education has the power to befuddle, but education also has the power to free us. We learn geography so we understand where countries are situated in relation to one another. We learn geography to understand the layout of the world. We study history to understand the social dynamics of why things are they are, why one social system collapsed and was replaced by another. So if that is the premise of what history is. And I'm not saying it's solely because you've got sociology, anthropology, that creates the conditions to for us to begin to understand each other and to find each other, to come together, predicated on an understanding, and then we can start that complex psychological process of trying to find each other. You know finding each other is not such a, is, not, is not simple no it,
0: particularly in our still divided cities.
1: I mean that's a that's another complete discussion as well that we have failed to adequately address the social and economic plight of our people that is another issue so I think I'm glad you raised it because I don't want people to think that I'm purely focusing on history as if it's the be end and all but history is a, is the context a, the context We begin to evolve and start to say also we need to parallel address the plight of our people from the point of view of them being denied access to the economy, being denied access to the basic necessities, being denied access to the creature comforts. Like the land issue, we've misunderstood it. There are two issues here, there is property rights which is separate from land redistribution, we need to draw that distinction between the two. Preservation and protection of property rights, because land is referring primarily to rural land, farming land. So it is a much more complex issue, but they should the processes should be run in tandem, in parallel. But if we don't create the conditions for the soft understanding those hard issues around how to create a more equitable society predicated on the economy and redistribution will itself become unstuck.
0: I just want to talk a little bit about the space that we're that we're in. I mean, it's a fascinating journey that you that you go on, um, and I'm sure. I mean, given your historical relationship to the space, it must be quite a thing almost every day to walk through some parts of of this this um this space um, it, how have you managed to to do that i mean what was your thinking when you created the this this journey for the individual as you as you go through because you you seem to have covered so much ground not only the events of the day of this space but also um the at, well let's say at the ANC uh, and the liberation struggle
1: I think when I started the project I told my professional team that the exhibit must be done on the following basis and I quoted a line from a movie Singing in the Rain so they all looked at me and said what has Singing in the Rain got to do with creating this site I said it's going to have everything to do with it so I said to them remember this line This movie begins in the middle for the benefit of those that come in the middle. So they looked at me like very perplexed. And then later on, I then quoted from Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf arrived and Frodo said to him, you're late, and he said, I am never late. I arrive when I am supposed to arrive. I said, put those two together. So the essence of Lily's Thief is there's no starting point and there's no finishing point. You arrive at the point that you're supposed to start, and you arrive at the point that you're supposed to end. Why? Because Lily's Leaf, as it has grown, is a living, breathing space, and it has a a mind and feel and an energy of its own i unfortunately can't feel that energy because i'm so entwined but a lot of people say when they come here they can feel the energy they can feel that atmosphere and they can feel it that aura that exists and you can't go against it you can't push against the systemic structure you must go with the systemic structure and lily's leaf has that systemic structure is that aura that sense that feeling that it has, that, that it's a place of, it's a living, breathing place. And you must go with the flow. And that's what we've done. Mm. So the space has evolved. Nothing has really been planned. It's been a process, just like Lily's Leaf was a process that started out as the Communist Party headquarters and amorphed. morphed into the nerve center of the liberation movement. No one sat back and said, we are going to make Lily's Leaf the nerve center. No one said we are going to make Lily's Leaf the high command. Ahmed Kathadra said it was through a process of osmosis. And I suppose that is what stuck with me. Hmm. If this was a process of osmosis, it means it was something that allowed itself to naturally happen. Everything that happens on this site happens naturally happens at its own pace. Again, if I may give an example, we have the MK Memorial. That's a prime example. I just happened to wake up one morning at three o'clock in the morning and I said, (laughs) we need to do a memorial. (laughs) Called my professional team together and said, we must do a memorial. And we put up a memorial. Mm -hmm. It just happened at that moment that I realized we needed a memorial. It wasn't something that I'd been thinking about. It just popped into my head and it popped into my head because it was it was, the right time. International solidarity was something that we had never planned to do. It was something that happened fortuitously. I happened to be sitting with the Swedish ambassador one afternoon, having a cup of coffee with him, and we were talking, and he was saying how concerned he was that Sweden was not getting the recognition for the role and contribution it played in the liberation struggle. So I said, why don't we do a permanent exhibit? Hmm. So he said, okay. And so, what has that led to? That has led to a permanent exhibit. On Norway, we are going to be installing a permanent exhibit on the former German Democratic Republic. East Germany next year, we've just completed a pilot project with the Danes. We're going to be exploring the possibility of doing a permanent exhibit with them. We're doing a permanent exhibit with the European Union. We now want to build the Center for International Solidarity. Hmm. That was not on the, the agenda. That wasn't part of my broader vision. It just has evolved. Lily's Leaf evolves according to how Lily's Leaf would like to
0: evolve. You've mentioned your professional team, and I'm just intrigued as to, if you could just give us, a sort of guide us through the professional team so we get a bit more of a, an idea of what, what other kind of work you are involved in uh, here at the site. So, Because there is an archive, is there not? I mean, there's, there's various other components. So Lily's Leaf... Structurally, is
1: split into two components. The first is the administrative side of the Lily's Leaf Trust, which focuses on the day-to-day administration and the day-to-day running of the historical site, the maintenance of the site, maintaining it, keeping it clean. On the other side is the Lily's Leaf Legacy Program. <coughs> oh, excuse me, the Legacy Lily's Leaf Legacy Program consists of a number of different projects you've mentioned the archive so one of the things which we're doing on the archive is making the archive accessible making it available because there's a wonderful quote by caroline hamilton and i'm not i can't remember the quote exactly but to paraphrase it she says that the archive is the ancestor to the unborn child that the unborn child and is born into the world, the archive will provide it with the understanding of the world in which they were born into. So we want to make the archive accessible. We want to make it a place of research, a place of engagement. We have a library of nearly 5,000 books. We have over 900 hours of interview footage, of which over 600 hours Lily's Leaf itself has personally conducted. We have historical papers. We have rare pamphlets, books. A copy of the... Freedom Charter. And the original Freedom Charter, but we put that out on permanent display. So the archive is an incredible source. It's also the source for the exhibits because it's the interviews that we take and we use the interviews to create the, the, the content. But not only that, the interviews define the shape and the matrix of the exhibits to a large degree. We don't shape the exhibit to fit and then fit The interviews in Mm. we take the interviews and they shape how we do the exhibits how the exhibits unfold it's a creative process we then have the lily's leaf um legacy projects the archive is part of it but it's a, a separate one which focus on the interview process which focuses on developing the exhibits which we install right and the, the primary aspect of the Lily's Leaf legacy projects is the capturing of memories and testimonies of individuals. That is a fundamental objective, first and foremost. It's not the actual exhibit, it's capturing the memories and testimonies of individuals, whether they are involved directly or indirectly, or bystanders who in some way or other have had 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 been impacted by what happened here at Lily's Leaf. And then that leads to exhibit development. As I mentioned, International Solidarity is one of the projects. We also try and upgrade and improve the exhibits when we can. We also run dialogues, because on his last visit to Lily's Leaf in 2005, Nelson Mandela said, What made Lily's Leaf unique was it was a place of intellectual, ideological, strategic, military discourse and engagement. Hmm. And, of course, we honed in on discourse and engagement because one of our visions is to create the Camp David of Africa, the place where people will come and meet, where African issues will be discussed in Africa and not in Europe. And so dialogue and roundtable dialogues form a key component of that. So we run roundtable dialogues on... On particular themes and issues so we also do occasionally organize conferences so next year we're organizing a conference on rivonia and the birth of mk Hmm. Um, we want to build the center for international solidarity because of the importance of international solidarity because like south africans forgetting our liberation struggle. We are also, and the world is also forgetting the role that the international community played in our liberation struggle. Mm. So there are various strands. And my professional team really is very small. It consists of three individuals, the cameraman, the program manager, and the researcher. And of course, when they start to build, they bring in other specialties or other people in special areas. As required. As required.
0: Mm. Um, I'm interested. Just do we need to uh, start wrapping up? I'm interested in two things. Um, one is now the challenge we face in terms of well, I suppose it's kind of the pros and cons of of technology, um, how you can use technology to build the story mm-hmm. and to disseminate the story of of Lily's leaf of the liberation struggle at at, at, a, at a broader level, but also um, technology in the, or dissemination in the, in the era of fake news and social media and I'm, I'm just intrigued as to if you've had any discussions around those kinds of challenges or how you see that sort of now going forward
1: look I mean it's interesting because technology is also the root cause of the destruction of history what do I mean by that we live in the here and now we live in the world of the Instagram. We live in the world of the tweet. We live in the world of Facebook. That as soon as you tweet, you move on. It is discarded. As soon as you posted a picture, you move on. As soon as you posted something on Facebook, you move on. So on the one hand, it is the immediate here and now. And the immediate here and now is momentary. It is there for a second and gone. And once it's gone, people are not interested, they move on to the next thing. So that they may say, I'm sitting next to Nicholas Wolpe and that's happened, and then they say they're they're sitting next to Nicholas (laughs) Paul. So do you see, Nicholas, that kind of thing where they'll be with me one second, a tweet, and then they'll sit next to you and tweet. But sitting next to me has been forgotten because they're now thinking about sitting next to you. And that, I believe, has had an impact on why history it's suffering there are a lot of other reasons but I believe that technology has in itself undermined the importance of history because it's all about the here and now it's all about that moment in time so that's where I think we have a problem on the issue of fake news I think that is something that is not really a concern to us Hmm. why do I say that? because your memory of your story may be interpreted by someone else as fake or incorrect because I suppose you can't say fake and incorrect in the same breath so we don't have the issue of fake news what we deal with is dealing with I suppose not the authenticity because your story is authentic to you but whether it's authentic to someone else that is the question. So we don't deal with or have a, a problem about fake news. Our problem is that we hear the story and we take that story on face value. And people have been very critical of us. And I've said that the role of Lily's Leaf is not to interpret the stories, the testimonies and memories. That is for the historian to the, and for the visitor and for the guest to do we are there merely to capture it for historical posterity that you as the individual, whether in fifty years, hundred and fifty years or two hundred years, are able to come and listen to it and be able to hear firsthand from someone who was involved. Whether that is correct or not is not the concern of Lily Steve.
0: Nicholas, thanks very much for your time this afternoon. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And um all the best with the ongoing uh, and ever-evolving uh, project here at Lely's Leaf Farm.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I've thoroughly enjoyed myself.
0: I hope you enjoyed that. I would urge you all to come and visit the museum if you're in Johannesburg in particular or visiting Johannesburg. Uh, Leaf. Uh, it's a it's a really beautifully laid out a museum experience, uh, lots of interactivity, lots of information, and you really do get a sense of the purpose of the liberation struggle, particularly from an ANC uh, perspective, um, and also just to support the museum. Uh, funding is always a, an issue for institutions like this, there's no South African government funding at this stage, and I asked, Nicholas about this and even, you know, the wealthiest families, Oppenheimers are, he says, just not uh, interested in in supporting the project. So get on down there. Please subscribe to Voices from SA and Apple Podcasts, or you can leave a rating or comment. These ratings are important for the pod to reach a wider audience. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.